So this paper, um, it sort of had two origins. Uh, one, something that Nicole Vincent and I wrote for a, an agency tracking conference at Macquarie University. Um, I'd been interested in some time in thinking about Botox um, and the implications that it might have for uh, social relations. And she was sort of interested too in you know, what might happen in cases of, um, you know, where people are totally um, paralysed, uh, where you know, emotions could be expressed bodily. So we did something for that. And then I was invited to a conference last year to mark the 50th anniversary of, a very, of the publication of a very famous philosophical paper, Peter Strawson's Freedom and Resentment. And somehow the, the two projects got themselves together. Um, and this is, this is the outcome or the next stage. So, first of all, um, the reactive attitudes. Well, I guess none of you would have any trouble figuring out what emotion that guy is feeling. He looks pretty angry. Moreover, he looks very accusatory. Um, he looks like something, somebody has done something that they shouldn't have done and he's blaming them for it. Um, like Craig Venter. Pardon? Like Craig Venter. I don't know who Craig Venter is, so <laughs> that reference is lost on me. Um, but I mean, if you look at the face, and we can all tell what emotion he's feeling, um, it's interesting to think about. And if you think about the last time you got really, really, really angry, and you think about what happened to your body and what happened to your face, um, if you think about whether if you were paralysed, if you couldn't move your face or your body in those ways, whether you would feel as angry, whether you would have gotten as angry, and if you didn't, what effect that would have on the sort of attitudes that you would express and take. Okay, so Strawson has written this very famous paper in which he suggests that the reactive, what he calls the reactive attitudes, uh, chief among them, he thinks, uh, is sort of resentment, forgiveness, um, but pretty much all of the emotional attitudes that feed into um, our interpersonal relation, interactions with each other. He thinks that they're the foundation of moral responsibility and that we can get up our account of moral responsibility by considering the, um, these interpersonal relations and how they play out. And so he says, he asks three questions about, or he distinguishes three questions about the reactive attitudes. He says, it's one thing to ask about the general causes of these reactive attitudes. It's another to ask about the variations to which they're subject, the particular conditions in which they do or do not seem natural or reasonable or appropriate. And it's a third thing to ask what it would be like, what it is like not to suffer them. I'm not much concerned with the first question, but I am with the second, and perhaps even more with the third. Now, in this talk, I'm going to be concerned probably primarily with the first question, um, the causes of the reactive attitudes, and then because I think that the answer to that is going to be important to what we say in answer to the second and the third questions. So the plan is to lay out the folk psychological project of interpretation and to explore how the reactive attitudes are built into this project. Uh, so what I want to do is, after considering the sort of foundation of the reactive attitudes and how they fit into our project of interpreting each other, I want to consider what happens when interpretation breaks down. I want to say something about the value of our practices because Strawson suggests that they're practices that we couldn't easily do without. And then I want to raise some questions about responsibility assessments. Um, so I'll be considering some cases when the reactive attitudes, the sort of blaming attitudes that we have, misfire. Um, and then I want to consider what the reactive attitudes might really be reacting to um, and the place of objectivity in our moral assessments of other people. OK, so Strawson, I think, starts with something fairly intuitive. He says, it matters to us whether the actions of other people, and particularly of some other people, reflect attitudes towards us of goodwill, affection or esteem on the one hand, or contempt, indifference or malevolence on the other. So all of those attitudes 
are important to us. What other people think of us matters. Uh, his famous example says, and he says, if somebody treads on my foot um, accidentally, um, it doesn't hurt any less than if they tread on it meaning to hurt me. But it makes a big difference to me. It makes a big difference to how I feel about the event, whether they've done it deliberately or whether they've done it accidentally. You know, on the one hand, I'll have a much more forgiving attitude. On the other hand, I'll feel pretty pissed off. So why would these things matter to us, though, objectively speaking, given that the pain is just the same? Well, the answer seems fairly obvious. We need to make choices um, in social interaction. We need to make choices about who we're going to cooperate with, who we're going to trust, who we're going to be friends with, um, who we want to avoid. And Strawson thinks, um, or at least it's part of his account, uh, who we're going to blame for things, who we're going to hold accountable and punish, perhaps, and who we're going to treat in a different kind of way. And it looks as though, for those purposes, quality of will whether a person is acting towards us with goodwill or with ill will is, you know, whether they have those feelings towards us is going to be an important predictor of how they're likely to behave towards us. A person with ill will is likely to mistreat us. We do better to avoid that person. Okay? It's not the only predictor, but it seems to be an important one. But, of course, in order to judge the quality of a person's will... Um, and predict how they're going to behave, we're going to need access to their mental states. We're going to need some kind of access to their intentions, their attitudes, their beliefs and their desires. Uh, that is, we can't always tell just from a person's behaviour um, or an event what the quality of their will is because initially if somebody treads on my foot I don't know if they've done it accidentally or if they've done it on purpose you know there's a treading on the foot um, now we can't inspect people's mental states directly we can't investigate their brains so we have to do it via an interpretive process uh, an interpretive process and we all I think have got this project of interpreting each other so this interpretive project relies a great deal on mind reading which is you know just our folk psychology our capacity to attribute mental states to others and to attribute them to ourselves and so we ascribe these states to predict to explain and to interpret behavior okay um, now we do this all the time and so automatically uh, that most people probably don't spend too much time thinking about the actual project that they're engaged in. So mind reading does rely to a very significant extent on processing and interpreting facial expressions from other people, um, particularly expressions of emotion. And what happens as we process Facial other people's facial expressions is that we generate emotions in ourselves and these, I think, are the foundations of the reactive attitudes, our responses, our emotional responses to other people. So what's the mechanism? Um, well, if you think about mothers and infants, mothers and the, the sort of, that sort of caregiver role, um, what you notice when you observe that is a lot of facial synchrony where the mother and the infant or the caregiver and the infant uh, will kind of mimic each other, respond to each other's facial expressions um, and there seems to be, certainly in the infant's case, we can only really explain this via a facial feedback hypothesis because uh, the infant doesn't know what expressions are on their face, um, hasn't got the concepts uh, and is really engaging in this process by being able to feel, by being able to facially mimic and feel what's going on in their own faces, generating the emotion. So the facial feedback hypothesis is a thesis about the relationship between facial expression and felt emotion and affect. And the idea is that we don't so much express our emotions with our faces as we feel our emotions with our faces. Okay? Um, and, I mean... We'll get more into that shortly. But there's three versions of this 
facial feedback hypothesis. There's a very strong version, the necessity hypothesis, that posits that without facial feedback there can be no emotional experience. Now that seems to me to be way too strong, um, that there could be no emotional experience if we were incapable of facial feedback. Um, but I think that <clears throat> the two weaker hypotheses, hypotheses are supportable. There's the sufficiency hypothesis that facial expressive muscle activity on its own can produce emotional experience. So if you smile, if you make a happy face, you will feel a little bit happier. If you make a very grumpy face, you might be feeling a little bit grumpier. And also, then there's the modulation hypothesis. So this is the idea that facial expression will modulate the emotional experiences that have been produced by some external stimuli. Now, remember what I'm... We're talking about the importance of facial feedback for comprehension and interpretation of others. Um, so how does that relate to this idea that when we mimic somebody's facial expression or we, fit or we smile or make some facial expression ourselves, we start to experience the emotion? Well, there have been studies done that support the view that creating facial gestures or expressions has got effects um, on emotion comprehension and recognition. So if you stick a... If, this was a study done by Havas, you hit like this with a smile, and it changes the time taken to read and comprehend both happy and sad sentences. So you're going to be slower at uh, reading and comprehending the sad sentences when actually like that. And also there are studies done that show that suppressing facial gestures and expressions has effects. So people were asked to consciously suppress their facial expression while watching very emotive video clips and that changed the self-reported intensity of the emotion that they felt while they were watching the, that, the clip. So if you're not allowed to laugh during something amusing or you're not allowed to, you know, you can watch something horrific and you've got to keep a blank face, that seems to change the intensity of the emotional experience. Um, so what do we read and display? Well, what I started with was a picture of a very angry face. Um, angry faces, the, the basic emotions, they tend to result in quite involuntary expressions which are pretty universal across cultures uh, of basic emotions. That's anger, grief, fear, joy and disgust. Um, they're they're, um, they're pretty easy to read and, as I say, they're cross-cultural. Then there's more voluntary expressions that are culturally shaped. So, you know, expressions of interest, sympathy, approval, boredom um, and disapproval. Those expressions can be sort of shaped by the culture that you're in and so other different cultures may have different ways of uh, facially expressing and so perhaps feeling those emotions. And then there's what I'd want to call non-voluntary expressions because I think the expressions of various expressions can sort of fleetingly cross your face perhaps even while you're trying to put on a different face. Um, and they can occur non-voluntarily and without direct awareness so that, you know, you might have a fleeting expression of irritation or doubt or anxiety or pride that, you know, maybe you don't want other people to see but they can pick it up if they know you well enough or are reading you closely enough. Okay, so moving from facial expressions to social interactions... Um, as Ralph Adolf says, facial expressions can be considered as aspects both of emotional response and of social communication. So there's a whole class of emotions and the facial expressions that go with them that serve to regulate social behaviour. Um, think about facial expressions of disapproval or irritation, things like that. You're sending a signal to other people to modulate their behaviour in line with you know, the disapproval you show, i.e. that joke's not funny. Um, and it tends to perhaps sometimes take the wings out, wind out of people's sails. 
And feeling such social emotions, Adolf says, involve being able to represent yourself as situated in a web of social relations and it requires representing the internal mental states of other other individuals. That is, it involves representing how others feel about you. So there's, given the regulatory role and the fact that I'm not just really concerned with detecting your mental states to figure out what actions you are going to perform, but I'm also very concerned to detect your mental states to know how you feel about me and what you think of me. Um, There's a lot of social attunement uh, going on between two parties in a social interaction. So the take-home message really is that we're not simply detached observers when we're doing this interpretation of other people's mental states, when we're engaging in the folk psychological project, we're not simply detached observers of the outward facial signs and symptoms of the inner mental states of others. We're also participants. We're responding to their facial expressions with our own faces and the feedback, both verbal and non-verbal, that we receive from others is really crucial to our own self-interpretation and our own presentation because we're very concerned really about ourselves and how we're coming across. So we respond to other people's facial expressions with our own faces and those responses and the interactions themselves are often going to be very fast and automatic so they're going to be non-deliberative. You know if you think about even simple social interactions and certainly something more extended like a long conversation, there's so much going on that obviously you're not aware of um, explicitly at each and every moment. The The way the interaction is being modulated by both interactants. Um, now the interaction gives rise to effective responses in us and also I think to the judgments that constitute what Strawson calls the reactive attitudes. When I'm in an interaction with another person, I can feel all the sorts of things that might, um, you know, I, could, I might feel shame, I might feel pride, I might feel anger, resentment, you know, this person's not treating me well <coughs> enough, um, and I may feel sentiments towards them that are relevant to responsibility, such as, respons- such as resentment and forgiveness. Okay? Now, if this is the story about how the reactive attitudes arise and how they operate in us and sort of what they're for, you know, um, I think questions arise about their value and about their authority, and these are different questions. And I suppose what I'm going to go on to suggest is that they certainly have value for us in some domains, but I'm not sure that they have the kind of authority that a Strawsonian view might suggest. So value, Um, well I think interpersonally they're incredibly valuable. Um, I've argued with um, a former colleague, Dean Cocking, that mutual interpretation that these sorts of practices are, are going to be crucial to the construction of intimacy and love and friendship, and those are the adult sorts of relationships that are Strawson's focus in his paper. I think the voluntary, involuntary and the non-voluntary expressions are all important to the process that Marilyn Friedman talks about in her discussion of friendship, um, which you would think of as attunement and modulation. Remember that the, one of the weak hypotheses was about modulation. She called it the combined and mutually interested adjustments of those who are becoming or who are already friends. Now, of course, some of those adjustments that friends make towards each other are going to be quite explicit. You know, you'll decide that, oh, well, my friend wants me to do this, this is a reason for doing it, or she likes that, but a lot of them are not going to be so explicit that it's just going to be going along very, very automatically and smoothly. Um, so I think that, that there's value to the practices. Um, but I think that I'm, I've got questions about the authority. So one way to get at this is to think about what happens when the project fails. 
Now, Strawson suggests that when interpretation fails, um, when we can't sort of see somebody as a member of our community, uh, as, a, as a sort of a moral um, part of our moral community, what we do is that we move to the objective stance. And, the objectives, and in the objective stance, we sort of view them from a distance very objectively, and we won't have the kinds of reactive attitudes to them that we have to those that we're engaged with in the participant stance. However, it seems to me that, that the problem is, and he, he's thinking about cases where somebody is mad or somebody is only you know, a small child um, or you know, is impaired in some way that the interpretive project can't get off the ground. Um, I'm a bit concerned that if mutual... What I think is going on is that if mutual interpretation relies to a significant extent upon subtle facial cues, including all these different kinds of expressions of emotion that I've been talking about, and those cues or a certain class of cues are unavailable, then the folk psychological project of interpretation is disrupted. That's not surprising. Um, but what happens then? We rely on feedback from others for predictive purposes. What is this person going to do? And to let us know how we're going. What does this person think of me? And if we don't get any apparent response or a very muted response, we sort of falter. We don't quite know what to do next, you know. The interaction sort of grinds to a bit of a halt, you know because we really rely on the, the continued cues to keep going. So when you're giving a presentation, you know, the signs from the audience, you know, you sort of cons you look around a bit. Are people engaged? Are they sort of, you know, nodding off in the back seat or something? Um, it all gives you a sense of how you're going. Um, if we're in a one-on-one -on -one reaction and we're not getting any feedback from a person... Um, then that's going to frustrate interpretation because we don't know what they're going to do and we don't know what they think of us. And it really acts as a strong disincentive to further communication with that person. OK, so what are some ways in which um, interpretation, the folk psychological project of interpretation might be blocked? Well, Botox, um, I think, is an interesting case study here because it's, um, it's like a big uncontrolled experiment going on. Um, I think I looked it up recently. There have been 100... And, I mean, the, the growth in Botox has been exponential. I mean, maybe it's levelling off now, but I think there were you know, hundreds of thousands of Botox treatments in Sydney last year. Um, so there are a lot of people who may be sort of impairing themselves um, both as an object of interpretation and as an interpreter through this treatment because what it does is it, it treats, it, it just paralyses your face basically. It, it's mainly frown muscles. Um, there's been a little bit of work done on this. Um, Davis uh, did a study where he had matched groups of Botox participants and people who'd been injected with a, a filler. So everyone's been injected, um, but some people were just injected with a filler that doesn't affect uh, your capacity to, which doesn't paralyse your muscles. And um, what happened is that the Botox group, they changed the self-reported intensity of, of felt negative emotions. They couldn't get as angry. Um, I think it was when I first read this uh, study that I got quite interested. I started thinking, well, maybe this is better than anger management for um, certain people. You know, we could end up with court-ordered Botox. It'd be, it could be cheaper and more effective than, um, than sending people off to cognitive behavioural therapy. You just, you know, freeze their faces and these guys will not be able to get as angry. Um, and they probably won't overreact to slights from other people because they won't be as quick to perceive them. So Botox treatment to the frown muscles has also been, in one study, shown to change the time taken to comprehension to read sad and angry sentences. Um, it doesn't 
change the eventual comprehension. Everyone gets to the right answer, but the Botox recipients are slower. And I think that's going to be important because if we're thinking about social interaction, um, they're usually very fast. So if the emotional expressions via the afferent feedback from the muscles and skin on your own face um, produces changes in your own emotion and cognition speed, uh, and you have Botox, which mutes the intensity of emotion and affect, then this could lead to slower and perhaps biased comprehension and interpretation um, of other people. So for the moment I'm talking about you know, the Botoxed person looking out. Um, you know, the person who can't feel the negative emotions might look blankly at their friend when they're you know, telling some heart-rending story and thinking, well, you know, I just don't think it's as bad as you make out. You know, if you're being a bit over-emotional about this, that's not probably going to be particularly good for a friendship. Um, interacting with somebody who couldn't give you instant facial feedback might affect your, the trust and the intimacy. Um, what you would get would be a sort of a jerky rather than a smooth and fast interaction. So if you think about lots and lots of slightly slower response times, the, the person on the other side might just think there's something wrong with this interaction. I mean, this is um, speculative, but the studies that have been done so far suggest that there might be these kinds of effects from Botox, and certainly recently there have been speculations uh, that Botox mothers, um, their infants will not be getting the facial feedback that they need from their mothers, uh, and that could be fairly important for the infant's cognitive and emotional development if the mother can't respond to the baby's face with her own face. Um, but We'll no doubt get to find out more about um, the effects of Botox as, as time goes on, but we do have some evidence about facial paralysis and its impact on interpersonal relations from um, other conditions where there's more severe facial paralysis, and that enables us to look at how the reactive attitudes are affected and also to consider the question of whether responsibility is affected when social relations are affected. Because if Strawson's right about the fundamental uh, role of the reactive attitudes in our responsibility practices, then uh, this ought to be the case. So let's look at Mobius syndrome, and this was um, from a report in the New York Times after Hurricane Katrina, and this young woman um, there was a social worker who, you know, went down to New Orleans, went to one of the reception centres to um, help out. And so she's talking about one of the victims, you know, afraid, alone, a fragile soul in a wheelchair. Um, she needed company, sympathy, and searched the face of her assigned social worker in vain. But the social worker seemed somehow emotionally removed. Something was missing. I could see the, connection, the breakdown in the emotional connection between us, could see it happening, and there was nothing I could do about it, said Kathleen Bogart. When the people she helped made a sad expression, she continued, I wasn't able to return it. I tried to do so with words and tone of voice, but it was no use. Stripped of the facial expression, the emotion just dies there, unshared, it just dies. So Bogart um, has Mobius syndrome, which is uh, congenital facial paralysis. It's, you know, inability for any facial expression at all. Um, and after this experience, she decided to give up social work and go into research and to do some research on Mobius syndrome and um, related syndromes where facial paralysis in, is involved. Um, and she's done a couple of studies, this one with Matsumoto, she says, you know, the conclusion is that during interactions with a person with Mobius syndrome, for example, an interactant might not notice when the person with the syndrome is joking or expressing sarcasm. Without facial cues, a simple greeting like, nice to see you, might be misinterpreted as insincere or sarcastic. If a person with Mobius syndrome doesn't respond with similar facial expressions in response to an interactant's display, the interactant may feel confused or misunderstood and behave accordingly. So when you can't do the facial thing, 
um, bad things happen to social relations. Um, it's associated with impaired social functioning in people with both Bell's palsy and Mobius syndrome. Even one, even if one facial expression is impaired, that's associated with reduced social functioning. So it's certainly bad for the person who has it, and it's hard for the people who are interacting with them. Um, this, these are from various people with Mobius syndrome reported in a book on the topic by Colin Spaulding. Um, and it seems to have effects internally on their experience of emotion as well as their capacity to express and interact. Um, and, you know, there's quite a sense of detachment that pervades their first personal accounts. So I think that if we think about not being able to suffer or express the reactive attitudes, it does point to the value of our practices. Um, it looks as though these practices are indeed very valuable to us and to social interaction, um, and certainly we'd be very different without them. I think that Strawson is right about that. Uh, if, we, if we were, you know, perhaps we... He says that maybe we could move... Even if we could move wholesale to the objective stance, and he thinks that this would be impossible for us to sort of have the kind of detached attitude that pervades some of the um, accounts that I was just talking about... He says we wouldn't want to um, because our practices have value for us. So, and he thinks that part of being in the participant's dance is holding each other responsible, is you know, adopting attitudes of praise and blame and those kinds of moral attitudes. Okay, so we might value the way we are over other ways we could be, just as Strawson says. Um, I guess my question is, what, if anything, does this story about interpretation and the participant's stance and the origin of the reactive attitudes tell us about responsibility? Because that's, that, I think, is the part that I have trouble with with Strawson. What does the story about how we interact with each other justify in terms of holding responsible? And I don't think that the value of these practices to us uh, in our social relations quite does that. So when are our often fast and automatic moral reactive attitudes to be taken as authoritative moral assessment? Could we recover this story from an examination of our practices? Now, Strawson famously says that attitudes of disapprobation and indignation are precisely the correlates of the moral demand in cases where the demand is felt to be disregarded. The making of the demand is the proneness to such attitudes. That's important. The making of the demand, the moral demand, is the proneness to such attitudes. That's a sort of, you know, a, a claim of identity. Um, the holding of them does not, as the holding of the objective attitudes does, involve viewing their object other than as a member of the moral community. Okay, so... If I'm holding the objective attitude towards somebody, I'm not viewing them as part of the moral community, according to Strawson. If I hold the participant reactive attitudes towards them, I am viewing them as a member of the moral community. That's the sort of and that's the identity and that's the source of the moral demand. Um, Strawson makes strong claims about this. He says, if the agent is warped or deranged, neurotic or just a child, all of our reactive attitudes tend to be profoundly modified. To the extent to which the agent is seen in this light, he's not seen as one on whom demands and expectations lie in that particular way in which we think of them as lying when we speak of moral obligation. So if we can't approach somebody from within the participant's stance... Um, all of our attitudes to them are going to be profoundly modified. They won't be seen as part of the moral community and they won't be subject in the same way to moral demands. He's not a morally responsible agent um, as a term of moral relationships as a member of the moral community. I don't know what's happening to my computer here, but I think... Hmm. So... 
these then individuals that we can't approach from within the participant stance, whom we can't interpret, uh, they can't be called to account, they'll be excluded. Strawson says they're to be managed, handled, cured or trained. And this seems to be, to be wrong as an account of responsibility and also as a description of our psychology and practices. Um, my view is that when we can't interpret somebody, um, when we can't approach them from within the participant stance in the way that Strauss describes it, I think the attitudes misfire. I don't think they disappear. Um, I mean, I think that very often we feel resentment and hostility towards other people precisely because interpretation has failed. Um, you know, there was a hint of that in the cases of facial paralysis where the interactant feels misunderstood and when you feel misunderstood you're likely to not feel as friendly towards the person as before. Um, I think in cases of cultural difference where there's a great deal of misinterpretation um, I don't think the reactive attitudes go away and I don't think the objective stance takes its place. You know, I think that we're very inclined to be hostile in cases of cultural difference. Um, I think that what happens is that when we're in a situation where the inter our capacity to interpret the other person fails for various reasons, because they've got facial paralysis, because they've got a different set of facial expressions, because their faces are covered up, because they just look a bit different, um, I think that one of the things that happens is that of course, we're less confident about our predictions about what they're going to do. Uh, but we also, it, it's also very frustrating to our self-interpretive project. We don't know what they think of us and we don't like not knowing what they think of us. Uh, given that we can't, and we put that together with our being unable to predict their behaviour, I think what a lot of us do is we fill the gap with an assumption of ill will. Uh, and then we take up reactive attitudes of hostility, resentment and blame which exclude those other people. Um, so in that case you think what on earth have these attitudes got to do with responsibility? Uh, they've got a lot to do with interpersonal um, relationships. Uh, with social cognition and social relationships, but what have they got to do with responsibility? What kind of guide are they to responsibility when we seem to get it so terribly wrong? I mean, you might think that this is just a blip, it's just a misfiring, um, you know, that most of the time we get it right, but I actually think it's pretty common. Now, I won't have to go into this case terribly much because most of you are probably familiar with it. The James Bulger case... Um, two-year-old two-year-old English little English boy who was um, taken away from got separated from his mother on a shopping trip got taken away and was brutally murdered and left by some train tracks okay and these are the killers um, Robert Thompson and John Venables um, and they were ten years old at the time I think now Remember, Strawson's claim that if somebody's only a child, we adopt the objective attitude towards them and we give up on blaming them. But if you look at the reaction to the murder of James Bulger, um, that's not what happened at all. Uh, in fact, the attitudes, the anger directed towards these two children was almost greater, if anything, than if the murderer had been an adult. Um, the grim details of the crime, the age of the perpetrators and the two-year-old victim provoked universal grief and anger. The CCTV image of Bulger being led away by the hand became etched in the public consciousness. Newspapers sought to reflect the mood of the nation by labelling the killers, 10-year-old children, remember, variously as evil, beasts and bastards. Um, the, there was such a clamour that their minimum sentence was increased, uh, but even then almost 280,000 people signed a petition demanding that the boys be locked up for good. 
um, and 20,000 sun readers completed coupons saying life should mean life. Um, so not a lot of withdrawing of attitudes of um, holding responsible, holding accountable in this case, in spite of the fact that they were only children. I mean, what can we learn from this case? The thing is, it's not an unusual case. Um, unjustified resentment just abounds. Just uh, take a look at the media, take a look at any blog, and you will see resentment that doesn't seem to attach itself to, that doesn't seem to be appropriate. Um, you know, resentment based on difference, resentment about, you know, resentment towards small children. So it seems to me that telling a story about the reactive attitudes, as Strawson does, doesn't tell us the right kind of story about responsibility. And I'm not suggesting here that, you know, this was all just a horrible accident and these were sweet little boys. Um, you know, they were clearly ill-motivated. They, um, even though they were young, they seemed to take pleasure in this. Um, and yet we tend to think that they surely couldn't be fully responsible. And why do we think that? Um, I think that it suggests that there's more to blameworthiness than the quality of will account that Strawson offers. You know, Strawson's account of responsibility is basically an account about the quality of will that another person shows towards us. And it's when they show poor quality of will that we're entitled to blame them, which makes it puzzling why Strawson thinks that we shouldn't, or we're not in the business of blaming children or the mentally ill and so forth. Um, and I don't see the internal resources in Strawson's account to deal with this. I mean, sure, he's got a list of the standard excuses and exemptions, but they don't arise out of the reactive attitudes in the way that he thinks they do. Uh, they don't match up with the... They don't modify our reactive attitudes in the way that he thinks they will, plainly. So what's going to be required for holding responsible? Well, I don't think the participant stance is required for holding responsible. I think that people with facial paralysis and other people with whom uh, we might find it difficult to get into the participant stance, such as high-functioning autistic people, um, are not necessarily or obviously lacking in what's required in order to hold and to be held responsible for what they do. Um, yeah. So I think that when we say of someone that he's only a child um, as a way of sort of saying he's not a candidate for full blame, for full responsibility, I think that what we're pointing to are undeveloped capacities. Uh, I don't think we're pointing to the ways in which we can um, occupy the participant stance with relation to this person. And so it's not just about quality of will. A child could um, convey goodwill or ill will, and of course we'll be better pleased if a child conveys goodwill, um, we'll be happier about that than if they you know, have a nasty will, um, but in neither case are they going to be candidates for full blame. So, Moving from children to the case of the psychopath, I'll probably just maybe skip over this. Um, I think there's evidence that psychopaths have certain moral incapacities which mean that they are not blameworthy, and I'm happy to talk about that in question time if anybody wants to ask me, but in the interest of time I won't do that now. However, I think that their actions are fully attributable to them, you know, the actions of the psychopath are attributable to them, uh, their actions are in character, uh, and their actions are expressive of their usually ill will. Um, now, some people think that that's enough for responsibility. Um, I don't think, I guess I don't, I don't think it is, and I think that the other cases that I've given suggest why we should be wary of, of thinking that that's going to be sufficient. Um, I mean, the people who think that it's enough say, and I agree, psychopaths really are 
vicious, manipulative and so forth. And so, in a sense, a negative character assessment is fully justified for them. Um, that's what they're like. It's just a correct description to call them vicious. But if they really do lack the capacity to recognise and understand moral claims and to exercise self-control with regard to moral claims, then perhaps it's not going to be fair to blame them because blaming them would seem to presuppose that they are indeed part of the moral community and that they're going to be capable of acquiring the kinds of concerns uh, and understandings and um, responses to moral demands uh, that are a feature of members of the moral community. And if they're really, if they're really constitutively incapable of acquiring those kinds of concerns, then um, I think that blaming them does misfire. Uh, in the case of the psychopath, we're not going to be able to make them responsible by holding them responsible. We're not going to be able to kind of scaffold moral responsibility in the way that we try to do with children. Um, we can't really engage with them around these topics, at least from within the participant's stance. But that doesn't seem, as was the case with the Bulger, uh, case that doesn't seem to stop people having very negative um, reactive attitudes towards psychopaths and taking up attitudes of blame. So once again I'm thinking that there's a disconnect between our experiencing certain reactive attitudes and what's required to fairly hold somebody responsible for their actions. I think in any case you've got to see attributability as only a rough guide to responsibility anyway uh, because we can be responsible for an action which is out of character. Um, you know, it's not attributable to us in, the, in that sort of strong sense of being um, who we are, but it might be our action nonetheless that we should be held responsible. So here's really just a kind of suggestion about the way the reactive attitudes um, tie in with moral assessment, what... What, because they, they certainly have an evaluative component, but I don't think that um, they tell us much about responsibility. I think that what the reactive attitudes target is character. Um, so oftentimes they're going to be an intelligible response to the commission of a wrong which violates the demand for goodwill. So there is a sense in which when somebody does something nasty to us, um, to feel resentment is, is natural, reasonable and appropriate. But we can't go from there to responsibility. Our reactive attitudes also have other functions. I think our reactive attitudes towards certain sorts of actions um, affirm our own values and they affirm our basic moral commitments and they act as a signal to others that we can be relied on, that we're not going to behave in that way. I mean, if I'm outraged by a certain kind of behaviour... I'm signalling to you, to the world at large, that, you know, that's not OK with me. I wouldn't behave in that way. You know, I'm repudiating and condemning those kinds of activities. Um, and so I think that's an important function of them, but once again, that doesn't have anything to say about the responsibility of the person for the kind of behaviour that I'm condemning. So I just want to finish by saying that... I don't think Strawson has really told us a story about responsibility. I think he thinks he's telling us a story about responsibility, but I think that when you look at that it's not nearly as neat as um, he would like it to be. Um, and I think that when we are making responsibility assessments, there's a role for objectivity, a very important role for ob objectivity, in assessing whether the individuals whose, whose responsibility is at issue had responsibility-relevant capacities, including knowledge, deliberation, planning and control. I mean, Strawson talks about all of these things, but strangely enough, he seems to think that these are just the sort of things that arise within our practices as the kind of things that moderate the um, reactive attitudes rather than as sort of independent factors that we should be attending to uh, in determining responsibility. Uh, and 
if we think that responsibility depends on capacity, um, then capacity assessment seems to me to be not something that needs to be done from within the participant stance and oftentimes it might be better done from a more objective point of view, perhaps in the way that a judge does it. Um, you know, I think that there's an important place for cool assessment of the facts in deliberation and moral assessment and particularly in assessments of responsibility because when we are going to hold people responsible and subject them to sanctions, we had better be sure that we're getting it right. Um, and also there's some evidence that people are actually better at assessing certain sorts of moral facts uh, when they do adopt the objective stance. There's a nice little study on lying. If you uh, are not allowed to mimic facial expressions, you'll be much better at picking whether somebody is lying when you do mimic their facial expressions, as we, as we all do um, fairly automatically. Um, it's harder for us to tell. OK, so conclusion, I think the participant's stance is critical for relationships. And I'm willing to acknowledge that, although I haven't sort of gone into that here, that it ordinarily is going to play a critical role in constituting us as morally responsive and responsible agents. Um, but we have to distinguish between the folk psychological project of interpretation and the normative project of evaluation of acts and persons. We shouldn't be thinking that these are the same project or that you know, the one just piggybacks on the other. Um, I think that evaluation uh, has a number of dimensions um, and perhaps quality of will is the one that we assess most readily from within the participant stance but, um, and quality of character, but there's also uh, all of the other things that are relevant to assessing somebody's responsibility uh, for which the participant stance is not particularly helpful. And I think that for responsibility assessments, which are a narrow band of... Um, evaluating a person, uh, morally speaking, um, should primarily target capacity. So that's it.